Hello and welcome to the Family Planning Files, a podcast developed by the National Clinical Training Center for Family Planning. I'm your host, Katherine Atchison. In today's podcast, part of our June 2022 Clinician Cafe on providing care for LGBTQ plus patients, we'll be discussing sexual and reproductive health care for MSM patients with Dr. Sheldon D. Fields, who is the Penn State College of Nursing's Associate Dean for Equity and Inclusion, as well as the first Vice President of the National Black Nurses Association. Dr. Fields has over three decades of experience working in the field of HIV-AIDS care, research, and prevention, especially with men of color. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Fields. We're so excited to speak with you today. Thank you, Catherine, for the opportunity to talk with you today about a topic that's really important to me. So to begin, can you give our listeners an overall snapshot of the state of MSM health in the U.S. today? Like, what are the big health issues? What are the epidemiological trends and data for the MSM community that we're seeing today? So men who have sex with men is a very large group. So lots of folks fall into that category. So there are the things that are related to whatever particular age group you happen to fall in. So, you know, you have the younger guys, the pre-adolescents, the adolescents, the middle-aged folks, and then those guys that are getting a little older. So we always have to follow the national guidelines for screenings and things like that. But generally speaking, the men who have sex with men, we need to be more mindful about their sexual health overall, which is what I know we're going to talk about in detail today and all the screenings related, because we have seen some trends and uptick in things like untreatable gonorrhea. We've seen some increases in those numbers. We have seen increases in substance use and abuse in certain age categories, which also puts men at risk. We've seen an uptick in hepatitis C that has been trending as well. And then, you know, you look across and you say, well, where were these men in terms of their risk for things like COVID-19, which is what, you know, we've all been dealing with. And there is some instances about, you know, well, what do you need to watch? Then the one thing I really want to mention is the mental health of these particular men based on everything from increased levels of depression, some increased levels of suicide amongst some of the older age groups that we also need to be mindful of. Well, that leads us really well into our next question. The first thing you mentioned were those STIs, and the CDC released new STI testing and treatment guidelines back in July 2021, and those contained a number of changes and new recommendations for MSM. So can you go through those? Absolutely. The Center for Disease Control did issue some sort of improved guidance, if you will, because we've also always known that there were a few things that we needed to do for this group. But generally speaking, what puts the men at risk is they're having multiple partners, anonymous partners or, you know, concurrent partners. And not every man who has sex with men is just having sex with men. They're also having sex with those who identify along the transgender spectrum, as well as a number of these men still do actively have sex with women or cisgendered women. So in terms of their trends and increased syphilis infections, there's been, like I said before, the uh, increased use of things like crystal meth and other substances which lowers people's sort of ability to make rational and what we call, you know, good choices. When you're impaired, 
you don't do that very well. The other thing that we have seen is increased gonorrhea infections that have an antimicrobial resistance. So what does that mean? It's harder to treat. The current medicines and antibiotics or treatments or antimicrobials that we have that traditionally treat gonorrhea for a certain subgroup are no longer working. So we have to go to other medications. We have to treat people longer. And the other thing, quite honestly, the CDC really said, okay, if we know in general and we're doing increased screening, which we'll talk about specifically, those men who do come back negative for things like HIV, are we talking about PrEP with them? Are we putting more on PrEP? And we can talk about those specific PrEP regimens. You know, testing uh, men who have sex with men and just doing urethral swabs is not adequate. If men are having receptive anal sex, they need, we need to be doing rectal swabs. If they're having receptive oral sex, we need to be doing pharyngeal oral swabs. And we really need to bump up our screening for those MSM who are sexually active to at least quarterly. And we need to do some other things. We need to be talking to these men about hepatitis B and screening for hep C, according to the CDC, as well as asking them about HPV exposure, particularly those up to the age of 26. And of course, we always need to revisit any discussion with our old friend herpes because, you know, all the STIs, they kind of hang out and groove together. So we got to test them. So that's where we are with the CDC's latest update. And again, perfect intro for our next question, which is specifically about PrEP. In addition to the STI testing and treatment guidelines, there's new PrEP or pre-exposure prophylaxis guidelines, and also a new injectable PrEP option has just been approved by the FDA. What can you tell us specifically that's new in the realm of PrEP? So this is exciting because we now have another tool in our armamentarian, if you will, to provide people with a pre-exposure prophylaxis option for the prevention of HIV. And that is in a form that was approved in December of 2021 by the FDA, following what is some very rigorous testing. I was involved in that testing, the clinical trial, the HIV Prevention Trials Network 083 study, which was specifically for cisgender men and trans women, and the HPTN 084 study that was specifically for cisgender women. Because if you remember, if the audience even remembers the initial oral medications for PrEP did not include clinical recommendation for cisgendered women because they weren't included in the trials, the, the studies, which was a huge error. So I was really glad to see that we do have the data, the clinical data that supports the use of the new injectable PrEP or what we call cabotagavir, which is the common name, the medical name that we use for it. And it gives you the option of initially having two injections one month apart, and then a single injection every two months has been shown to be sufficient to get us about preventing at least 90% of all HIV infections, which is a huge and significant leap. So if you're a person who doesn't like taking pills or really cannot tolerate swallowing oral medications... This new injectable medication is very much an option for you. I want to encourage people to talk with their medical providers and see if 
this is something that would fit into their particular lifestyles and what they know is going on for them because it is very much an option for people. And of course, MSM health issues extend beyond STIs and HIV. As we know in a number of studies, and as you mentioned, MSM are more likely to experience issues such as depression or substance abuse. And we've seen an uptick of that over the past two years due to the COVID pandemic. What are some ways our clinician listeners can be proactive about addressing these issues specifically with their MSM clients? For clinicians in general who know that they are dealing with a population of patients who identify anywhere along that, you know, men who have sex with men spectrum, and it is a spectrum. Clinicians need to be very open. They need to be very accepting. And they need to be able to ask some very personal questions about what are the men doing? What is their sexual behavior? What are their practices? I often say to my patients, look, tell me what body parts you're using in your sexual practices, and I'll be able to give you a list of things that we can talk about to better protect you and your partner. Very non-judgmental, sort of very matter of fact. But then we also have to screen these men for depression. So using something like a simple, you know, mini mental screening tool that you just screen everybody for would pick up some early signs of depression. Asking men about the other parts of their life, you know, their family life, their school, their job, get a sense of who they are as a complete person. We'll give you insight into whether or not they have some social supports in their life, friend network, a kinship network that can support them through maybe, you know, issues with economics, any type of socioeconomics, you know, you lose your job, you know, things not going right at school, you're situationally housed, you know, all of those things will impact. But also using some type of screening tool for substances that includes tobacco use. Marijuana, other substances such as crystal meth and other party drugs that certain populations tend to use. Stimulants, which of course are really big in some aspects of the group as well. And of course, we cannot leave out alcohol. And, you know, just sort of gauging people's use of alcohol, because not all use is abuse. I'll be very clear about that. Not all use is abuse in terms of alcohol, but, you know, if you get an indication that there is some excessive alcohol use, which we know have deleterious health effects, then those are things that we also need to screen about. So approach your patients as whole people. Ask about other aspects of their life and you'll get a good sense of who they are and how the other parts of their health might also come up. And in terms of preventative health, you mentioned briefly um, things like HPV or screening for hep C, but in terms of preventive health, such as vaccines and those cancer screenings, what should our listeners be doing specifically, again, for MSM patients that they see? What is particularly important? So what's particularly important for the MSM is that we make sure that we know if they have any vulnerability to hepatitis B. If they do not have titers to hepatitis B, we can immunize them, you know, using the hepatitis B vaccine series. We should be screening MSM at least annually for the presence of hepatitis C, especially because we have highly effective curative treatments for hepatitis C. So we should be catching it early. 
HPV or the human papillomavirus that causes a lot of different types of cancer. We have a vaccine that is recommended for those up to the age of 26, and we should be vaccinating boys. We're doing a better job with young women. We're doing a horrible job with young men with HPV. And it's available. And it's part of the now the recommendations. When men start to get a little older, their prostate screenings and their colonoscopies for colon cancer, assessing their tobacco use and making sure their other immunizations are up to date. I recommend, you know, nowadays, since COVID is going to become endemic, this fall, when you go to get your COVID shot for the fall, get your flu shot at the same time. I also recommend to people, particularly that older group, if you haven't had your immunization for shingles, uh, varicella, you know, do that as well. And of course, if you are even older, you need a pneumonia shot in terms of your vaccine. And then an annual, even um, every, they say it can be up to a decade, but, you know, check your TD about every five years, you know, to your tetanus. And... Of course, as you mentioned, being MSM is a whole spectrum. I mean, there are patients who are exclusively MSM, and then there are plenty of MSM who have sex with people who identify as trans or who are cis women. Mm -hmm. Um, What should clinicians keep in mind about MSM who also have female partners, especially cis female? Again, be open-minded. Don't think that you automatically know who all of the partners are that your MSM patients have ask. So if they tell you that they're having intercourse with cisgendered women, then have a discussion about family planning because guess what? Pregnancy is an issue. Pregnancy can occur. You know, are they planning a pregnancy? And it's fine if you're planning families. You know, they may need some assistance with that as well. But have those discussions. Then, you know, also that goes into the whole sexual health education and protecting partners. You know, it might be the use of condoms and other, you know, barrier methods in addition to having their screens for uh, sexually transmitted infections. And if something comes up, gauging where they are and their ability to talk with their partners openly and honestly about any potential risk and exposures. So most of our listeners are clinicians within the Title X network. So that's the Federal Family Planning Grant. And most of those clients tend to be under the age of 30 or so. What are special considerations our clinicians should keep in mind when providing care for adolescent and young MSM today? So I have spent a fair amount of time working with younger MSMs, particularly those of color, which particularly at one point still, are a significant number of HIV infections occur disproportionately in this group. So honesty, asking the questions, you must bring it up. You must be comfortable with it. These patients have really good detectors. So they know when you're lying to them, they know when you're not being straight up with them. You know, find a way to connect Most of these kids will trust their clinicians if they know you really care about who they are. So I've never had a patient refuse to answer a question once they realize why I'm asking. But you have got to be comfortable with asking. If you're not comfortable talking about 
sexual behavior in practices, then find a clinician who is. Because you don't ever want to unintentionally do any harm by not asking. And clinicians who don't ask are doing harm. I'm very clear about that. And if you didn't hear me, if you are a clinician who are not asking these patients about their sexual behaviors and practices, you are doing harm. Just the omission is harmful. And then give people options, inform them, teach them, and support them in their decisions. Not every patient is going to listen to you and they're going to come back and they need to know that they can come back. You know, they're going to make some mistakes. And I'll give you a good example. So, you know, I talk a lot for young MSM who are, you know, experimenting with forms of anal receptive sex. And you really want to teach them about, you know, how do you prepare yourself to do that in terms of how do you go about good rectal health? And not a lot of clinicians do that. And then, you know, one day they might show up and go, oh, you know, I followed most of what you said, but, you know, I didn't use a condom with my last partner and I let him ejaculate in me. Okay. Well, the good thing is, is if that happens, I want you to come in within 72 hours because one of the things I'm able to do at that point as a clinician is give you post-exposure prophylaxis, which a lot of clinicians are also not doing. And a lot of these young MSM, they don't know that there's a time limit. We have 72 hours post that exposure to put you on, you know, post-exposure prophylaxis that will prevent the establishment of HIV, particularly if you had sex and the HIV status of that partner is unknown, especially if you do know that the person was positive. But we can do something about that. And we need to be using post-exposure prophylaxis more often. And that's just one sort of really good exemplar. But if that patient, trust me, if I established a relationship and they know that they can come in and I won't judge them, then they're going to come back. And, and that's what you want. So most of our patients that are seen through Title X are female-identified cis females. So I'm sure our clinicians would love more resources. What are some places that you recommend for clinicians who want to learn more about the specific health needs and epidemiological trends in MSM? So, you know, there's a lot of good information out there, but you do got to be careful because there's also some conspiracy stuff out there as well. So any of the official governmental sites, like the ones we talked about, you know, always check the official CDC website for those treatment guidelines and updates, those you can trust. But there are a few things out there specifically focused on MSM. Fenway Health in Boston, their website is particularly good. They're the largest LGBT-focused health center in the country. They do a lot of clinical trials in the populations as well. They have a robust educational component to their website. The Colin Lloyd Center in New York City, similar LGBT-focused clinic and organization, also has some really great information on their website as well. I would encourage people to check their own specific communities and find those resources that are in your community, those community-based organizations that the populations trust. One that I know, particularly that I worked with in the Atlanta, Georgia area, is called Thrive SS. 
They specifically are focused on HIV, those who are living with and thriving with HIV that are also men of color. They have a specific program for men of color who are over the age of 50, which is one of the first in the country, because that group is living longer. One of the things that we've done in the evolution of the treatment of things like HIV is our treatments are so effective, people are having normal lifespans, which means some people are getting older. So those types of resources where people can go and find community are also important. And Thrive SS has a wonderful model to do that. Their program's called Silver Linings, and it's a fabulous program. You can find them, you know, just type in Thrive SS and it'll come right up. So I'm also a long-term member of the Association of Nurses in AIDS Care, or ANAC. I'm a former board member. And ANAC also has great resources and referrals and all kinds of information, not only for clinicians, but also for populations at risk. So those are just a few that come to mind that I would offer to people to take a look at. Well, our chat today has been fantastic, but like all good things, it must end. But before we say goodbye, what is your top takeaway message? If there's just one thing you want our clinician listeners to remember going forward as they return to their practice, what would that? So, you know, in this really sort of turbulent time, there's a lot of talk. There's a lot of angst when it comes to the treatment of those who identify along the transgender spectrum. You hear it in the rhetoric. Rights are being taken away. People are scared. And that's just one aspect of the community. You know, there's issues now related to reproductive health that are bubbling up. I want my fellow clinicians to really understand and appreciate that we interact with patients at some of the most vulnerable times in their lives. And we can be that person. We can be that entity that makes the difference between whether or not they get adequate treatment, timely treatment, respectful treatment, or no treatment. And owning to whatever oath you took when you became a clinician, and I don't care what type of clinician you are, MDs to nurse practitioners to physician assistants, wherever you fall along that clinician line, there is some oath that was taken to do no harm. So we have a choice in how we approach our patients. So I'm going to say what I said to a group of graduates when I just gave a commencement speech over this weekend. Choose to approach your patient encounters with unsolicited kindness, unconditional compassion, relentless professionalism, and radical humanism. If you do that, you will hold true to your oath of doing no harm. Our patients need us. Thank you, Catherine, for a wonderful opportunity to have this discussion with you today. And thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Fields, and for sharing your time and expertise. For more content, including previous podcast episodes, search for the Family Planning Files or subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For a transcript of this podcast, as well as other online learning activities, and continuing education opportunities, please visit our website at www.ctcfp.org. You can also follow the National Clinical Training Center for Family Planning on Twitter at NCTCFP, all lowercase, and sign up for a monthly newsletter 
Clinical Connections on our website. The National Clinical Training Center for Family Planning is funded by the Office of Population Affairs to provide continuing education, training, and technical assistance to Title X grantees, SEP recipients, service sites, and other family planning providers. This activity is supported by DHHS Grant No. 1, FPTPA 006031-01-00. The contents of this podcast solely represent the views of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official positions of the Department of Health and Human Services, DHHS, Office of the Assistant Secretary of Health, OASH, or the Office of Population Affairs, or OPA. No official support or endorsement by DHHS, OASH, or OPA for opinions or products described in this podcast is intended or should be inferred. Theme music written by Dan Jones and performed by Dan Jones and the Squids. Other production support provided by the Collaborative to Advance Health Services at the University of Missouri Kansas City School of Nursing and Health Studies. And finally, thank you to our listeners for tuning in today. We hope that you'll join us next time for another episode of the Family Planning Files.